Hi church family, uh, tonight's Bible reading is Genesis chapter 50 verses 15 to 26. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said to one another, if Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay us for all the suffering we caused him. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before he died, your father gave a command. Say this to Joseph. Please forgive your brother's transgression and their sin, the suffering they caused you. Therefore, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when their message came to him. His brothers also came to him bowed down before him and said, We are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And, be, and he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph and his father's family remained in Egypt. Joseph lived 110 years. He saw Ephraim's son to the third generation, the sons of Maseah, son Machir, were recognized by Joseph. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. But God will certainly come to your aid and bring you up from this land to the land he swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Joseph made the sons of Israel take an oath. When God comes to your aid, you are to carry my bones up from there, from here. Joseph died at the age of 110. They emboldened him and placed him in a coffin in Egypt. Thank you for that reading, Andrew. Um, we've got another quick video to watch. It's a bit of an introduction to this part of God's Word, the last few chapters of Genesis. It will, uh, it's really quite a handy video to help us see the context of where we're up to and to think about um, how it links with Jesus as well. So we'll watch that and then Ryan's going to come and speak to us from God's Word. This is Spoken Gospel. We're dedicated to seeing Jesus in all of Scripture. In each episode, we see what's happening in a biblical text and how it sheds light on Jesus and his gospel. Let's jump in. The end of Genesis gets us ready for the beginning of Exodus. God told Abraham back in chapter 15 that his descendants would be strangers in a foreign land for 400 years. And now that time is coming. It's no wonder then that when God appeared to Jacob on his way to Egypt, God told him not to be afraid to go. And the reason he didn't need to be afraid was that God would bring them back out of Egypt. And this is a promise repeated constantly throughout these last chapters of Genesis. Jacob makes Joseph promise him to bury his body back in Canaan as a testament to the fact that his descendants won't stay in Egypt. Before dying, however, Jacob extends a long series of blessings to his 12 sons. This is the high point of all the blessings and curses pronounced through the fall, Cain, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, God's promise is passing from one individual, Jacob, to a whole nation, 
Israel. But above all the blessings given, history recounted, and promises made in these closing chapters, one truth stands out above all the rest. After all his brothers did, Joseph is not even mad. He actually forgives them because he knows something true about how God works. Here's what he says. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. You intended harm, God intended good. This is the theme all throughout Genesis. God takes the sinfulness, deceit, trickery, lust, depravity, and selfishness of humans and makes good out of them. From Adam and Eve's fall, to Jacob tricking Isaac, to Judah sleeping with his daughter-in-law, God has been bringing good out of evil the whole way. And he does it to accomplish a purpose, the saving of many lives. How can we not see the gospel in this? People sought to harm Jesus by imprisoning him, forcing him through an illegitimate trial, whipping him though he was innocent, and murdering him on a cross. They intended harm, but God intended good. Through harming Jesus in this way, God has accomplished his ultimate purpose, the saving of many lives. Jesus is the promised seed of Adam and Eve that crushes the head of the serpent. Jesus is the descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who blesses all nations. Jesus is the one who will bring us out of this current Egypt we are in and take us to the promised land of his presence forever. I pray that the Holy Spirit would open your eyes to see the God who keeps his promises even through the evil intentions of human hearts. And that you see Jesus all throughout Genesis as the promise keeper who takes every evil intention and brings about God's ultimate good. How does, how does a dreamer, a daddy's boy, son of a Jew and a foreigner, dropped in the middle of a dust-ridden spot in, by, in the Mediterranean by providence, impoverished in squalor, grow up to be a hero and a chancellor? It would be easy to answer these questions by appealing to Joseph's perseverance, to his hard work and his integrity, wouldn't it? It's easy to make Joseph's story uh, one that we ought to imi imitate, one that we cast into our modern 21st century vision of success rather than try to understand the character in his time. But our passage doesn't allow us to do that. In fact, Joseph himself doesn't want us to do that. If you have a look at that key verses in Genesis chapter 50, Joseph says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me, to bring, but God planned it for good, to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. You see, Joseph does not want us to focus on Joseph in the story. He wants us to focus on God and what he's doing in this story. The key message of this last part of Joseph's story is this, that despite our suffering, God will bring us to him. I've only got two points to get today. 
Uh, the first is, covers a big chunk of Genesis 47 to 50 about the future promise. And then the second point is God's purposes for his people from verses 15 to 21 of chapter 50. So for that first section, which covers 47 to 50, the future promise, uh, we're going to spend the next few hours on this. Um, so just go detail one verse at a time, and no, we won't do that. Um, if you, it's really interesting to read and really um, cool to see the way that this links to the future promise. But I'm just going to fly over and see some of the key details, similar to what that guy did in the video just before. And what he said, and I think is true of these chapters, is that the key sense in this chunk is that they're looking forward. Jacob is looking forward. Joseph is looking forward. They're looking forward to a time when they will be in their land. And so in verse 40, uh, chapter 48 and 49, there's lots of blessings. Jacob knows that he's close to death, and he wants to bless his sons and his grandsons. And lots of what he says are things that are promises that he's hoping God will achieve in his boys' lives in the future. But not only does he bless them, there's also this tension that comes up in these chapters. And the tension is that God's people are taken away from their land, and they're feeling the tension of how can we be God's people? When will we go back to our land that God has promised us? You see, when there's a famine in Egypt, all of God's people migrate from the promised land into Egyptian territory called Goshen because of a famine. And this tension, uh, it's going to continue throughout the remainder of the first few books of the Bible. It's not resolved in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy. It's not until Joshua that they finally re-enter the promised land. But even when they're there, it's not smooth sailing. It's not everything that they hoped it would be. It's not all that it's cracked up to be. There's fighting, there's sin, and... A thousand years after this time, two empires, Assyria and Babylon, they come and they take God's people away from their place again. So God's people are in exile, and lots of the people who would have first read these verses, they would have been those people in exile feeling that same tension. How can we be God's people if we're not in God's land? Is God going to follow through on this promise? When we get to Jesus' day, it's people have trickled back into the land, but it's not fully theirs. The Romans have occupied it, and that tension still exists. And if you consider Jewish-Israeli politics at the moment, you can see that that tension is still there. The Jewish people are still trying to work out what their land is and how to have their land amidst all the conflict that's going on in the Middle East. It's that tension that Joseph speaks to in Genesis chapter 50, verse 24. He says, I am about to die, but God will certainly come to your aid and bring you up from this land to the land he swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see, there's no conditions to this promise. It's not if you do this or when you do this. 
God will certainly do this. He'll bring His people back to His land. And it confirms the covenant that God made with Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 17. In verse 8, where He says to Abraham, "'To you and your offspring I will give the land where you are residing, all the land of Canaan, as a permanent possession, and I will be their God.'" So you can understand why in the Israelite psyche, all throughout history, they've got this strong connection to this land. They think it's their God-given right, and they want the land. And this certain promise fills them with anticipation. It fills them with excitement that they're always longing to be back in that place. And we all know what that excitement, that anticipation of a certain future feels like, don't we? It's like the HSC students who are working away at their exams, knowing that in three, well, soon they'll have three months of holidays before them where they don't have to think about HSC anymore. There's a certain excitement and anticipation for that day. Or for some of you, it's that anticipation of finally being debt-free, when you've earned enough and paid off your mortgage so that part of your brain that's always thinking about how much debt you have finally is clear. Or for some of us, it's the excitement of that positive result on a pregnancy test or when we see uh, the baby in an ultrasound and the excitement that comes from that. As we wait expectantly and excitedly about those futures, Uh, we ought to remember that they're just shadows of the greater future that God is preparing us for. Just like this promised land that God gave to Israel, it was always supposed to be a shadow of the real land that God was preparing them for, the new creation. The faithful Israelites' hope is not in the physical land of Israel, but in the land that God will bring us to in the new creation. See, Joseph promised that God will certainly come and take them out of that land, and and God does fulfill that. He, He came in the pillar of fire and led them out of slavery in Egypt to a land of freedom where He was their God. But that was just a shadow, again, of the greater promise, because that didn't last. The shadow, the reality of that shadow is that God Himself, God incarnate, God in the flesh, came as Jesus to rescue us from our slavery to sin, to our evil desires, to our selfish natures. And the promise is that He will come again and take us to the new creation that He promised us. That's the hope that we wait for and Peter reminds us of in 2 Peter 3.13, where he says, based on his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. The future promise that Joseph was encouraging his family to those readers of this passage, the Israelite readers in exile, to us 3,000 years later, the promise is that there's a true promised land the new heavens and the new earth, where righteousness dwells. And we no longer have to be in this broken world where sin dwells. 
And before I get to the next point, I just want to acknowledge that, you know, some of the examples I gave, they don't always work out with a certainty, do they? And that is because we are currently living in a world where sin dwells. And a world marred by sin means that sometimes people do fail exams. And that fear is not wrong. It's not evil or anything. That's a right motivator for some people to get cracking on their study. We live in a world where people can lose their jobs. And the mortgage stress gets doubly uh, strenuous, that it puts a strain on your family life as you think about how you're going to get the money to pay off the mortgage. And even something as exciting as the safe arrival of children can be marred by sin, and especially the sting of sin, death. Now, I have to warn you that I'm about to talk about suffering, and not because I necessarily want to, but because I think I have to. I think the passage talks about suffering, and one of the reasons we do this kind of thing where we go passage by passage, chunk by chunk, is that we don't just talk about the things that we want to talk about. We talk about what the Bible wants to talk about. We let the Bible set the agenda, and sometimes that means student ministers have to talk about suffering. My second point is from Genesis 50, verse 15 to 21, and it's all about God's purposes for His people. You see, after, Joseph, after Jacob dies, Joseph's brothers come in verse 15 and are worried that Joseph this whole time has been holding a grudge against them for the suffering that they caused him and that he is going to repay them for the suffering that they caused. I don't know if you've ever seen or been involved in a dispute over someone's will. When, when someone's significant in a family passes away, it brings up all sorts of tension about who gets what and why. That kind of dysfunction is not just for particular families. I think all families are marred by sin and are dysfunctional in some way. It's just a question of how dysfunctional we are. And it's not just something that happens today. It was something that happened 3,000 years ago with Joseph's family. As soon as Jacob is out of the picture, all this junk comes out with their family, and they're not sure whether Joseph will treat them well. And there's a rightness to their fear, I think, because they did cause him great suffering. He suffered immensely. Joseph was chucked in a pit and sold by his brothers into slavery. His older brothers, whom he ought to have been able to trust, sold him for 20 pieces of silver. When he was in Egypt, he was falsely charged with sexual assault. And then he languished in a prison for many years while innocent. And even when he was out of prison, and you'd think, oh, he's got a great job, but he's isolated from his family, his friends, his culture, and his language. 
See, all the suffering that was caused to Joseph could be traced back to the sibling jealousy of these rash brothers turning on their own flesh and blood. So these guys, to try to manipulate Joseph into uh, doing what they want, they lay the emotional guilt and manipulation on thick. Have a look at verse 16 to 17. It seems that Jacob, who's kind of the famous liar in the Bible, has passed on his lying abilities to his kids. In verse 16, they say that it's their dad's dying deathbed wish that Joseph would forgive them and accept them. Except there's not really much evidence in the passages prior to this that this was Jacob's wish. We've got lots of information of what Jacob said and did in his last days. And if this was a real and significant occurrence, I think it would show up somewhere before this point. And in fact, Jacob and Joseph's relationship was so strongly restored that you'd think that Jacob would ask this of Joseph. But these guys have to lie and try to use the authority of their dead father to try to make Joseph do what they want. They beg for forgiveness twice. They put themselves as the servants of God, as if somehow an appeal to God would help them look really pious, and they know Joseph being a God-fearer would then uh, take pity on them. And in verse 18, they even bow down to him and say, we are your slaves. If you remember that first part of the Joseph story, he had this dream where his brothers would bow down to him and uh, he would rule over them. This has come true, but Joseph is no longer that 17-year-old Dibba who's his father's favorite son, lording it over his brothers. He's not even the 30-year-old chancellor over Egypt who played games with his brothers when they came to ask for help during a famine. Now, this is an older wiser man who's had some time to reflect and with the benefit of hindsight. Verses uh, 22 to 23 says that he lives to be 110 years old and sees his great-grandchildren. I'm sure when he was languishing in that prison cell, he didn't even imagine that there would be a possibility that he would live to this age, let alone see his family again, let alone have a family that he could see to the fourth generation. Joseph's response in verse 17 is a great sadness. Joseph wept when their message came to him. He weeps at their fear. He weeps at the dysfunction of his family, that they still don't trust him. He weeps that they think they have to manipulate him to get a response. But verses 19 to 21, they're kind of the money verses in this whole saga. Joseph says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Even though they're desperate for his forgiveness and want to be under his rule, 
Joseph points them to God instead. He says, who am I? Am I in the place of God? You see, I think part of his weeping is that Joseph has already forgiven them for what they've done. It come, comes out in his actions, it comes out in his words, but his brothers are so guilt-wracked and probably so mindful of the ways that the world works that they think, an eye for an eye, he's going to give revenge for what we've done. But Joseph is not vengeful. He instead wants to point them to God and see how God has used this situation to work out the salvation of many. Now, I think it's worth mulling on this a bit more and to really lock in on what Joseph is saying here. I've got four things that I think comes out of this passage. I think he's clearly saying that what his brothers did was evil. He's not excusing that. He's not justifying their evil. He's calling it for what it is. And he's saying that they are responsible for their actions, not God. But despite their evil, God worked a good result. And as we hold all those things together, I think the key thing is that he's not somehow saying that their evil action is now a good action. Just because God worked out a good result doesn't excuse, justify, or transform that evil action. That evil action was still evil. They are still responsible for it. You see, the, the concept of suffering, it's pretty complicated and lots has been written on it and it's explored in lots of different parts of the Bible. But I think this is the core of what the passage teaches us. A really useful book that I found, which I've left on my chair, but uh, you can see the image of it there, How Long, O Lord, by Don Carson. And in it, Don says, Evil is evil because it is a rebellion against God. Evil is a failure to do what God demands or their performance of what God forbids. Evil is real, and evil is evil. If you, have, if you haven't explored much about the topic of suffering, and particularly if you're not suffering right now, I would really encourage you to read a book on suffering, and I really recommend this book. Uh, and I think the best time to think about suffering is when you're not in it, because the story of the Christian life is that suffering will inevitably come. And you want to be able to proactively respond to that in a way that uh, points you to God uh, and not just reactively uh, respond and uh, question what's happening in that moment. At the time we are in this passage, Joseph is not in the suffering anymore. He's reflecting back and he sees how God's good hand was over him in that time. And things always look better and easier in hindsight, don't they? When you look back on something, you just forget the stress and the tension and the hard feelings that were in that time. That's why when people talk to students about their exams, exams that they're rightfully freaking out about, Often our responses say, don't worry about it. It's not going to matter in 20 years' time. No one's going to look at your ATAR. Which is really dumb, isn't it? 
because they are kind of important. And there's a real nervousness that people feel in that moment. And it misremembers our own fear in that time, and like we forget to empathize with them in that time. It, it's got the danger of trivializing something that is genuinely serious. People who are in the midst of suffering don't have that benefit of hindsight. And it doesn't come across as empathy, it comes across as patronizing when we try to give that kind of advice in that moment. But Joseph is not using hindsight uh, to try to patronize or to try to talk down to his brothers. He has generally worked through this and seen how God has worked out good from it. But that's not something we can all have. We won't always, God doesn't give us the guarantee that we'll have hindsight after a time of suffering. And God doesn't even promise that we will always know what the good is that he's worked out through our suffering. So offering that kind of trivial comfort is not a biblical principle. In preparing this passage, I've reflected on different conversations I've had with people here at church over the last two years, and I've realized there's been a lot of suffering in our church, COVID as well, but even despite COVID, there's been lots of suffering in our church. There's the loss of children, there's the inability to have children, there's the physical long-term trauma for some from having children. There's the breakdown of marriages, the breakdown of physical health, the breakdown of mental health, the alienation of family and friends. The effects of sin mar our world. And just because we're here in this place doesn't mean we're somehow protected from the impact of sin. And so in that moment, what is the comfort Joseph points us to? He points us to God. God who knows our suffering. You see, God empathizes with our weaknesses. Just like Jesus, uh, just like Joseph, Jesus was an innocent man who was sold by his, the, those closest to him into the hands of enemies, who suffered under those enemies and who ultimately died. He, didn't, he wasn't raised like Joseph to be in charge of the land. He died at the hands of his enemies. And Jesus was an innocent man who not only felt the excruciating physical suffering of the cross, but he also felt that emotional suffering of those closest to him abandoning him. He also felt the spiritual suffering of God's wrath being poured out on him for the sins of all of humanity. The evil that humanity planned against Jesus, God planned it for good, and the salvation of many. You see, as I've talked to people at TAC, good, godly people who have gone through significant suffering, I've heard back some variation of the same truths that this passage has helped us see. God, our uh, evil is evil. God is good. God defeated evil on the cross. God has a future promise of a place without suffering, 
without evil, without sin for us. The story of Joseph is a story about God. Joseph doesn't want his brothers to serve him, but to serve God. He doesn't want them to keep thinking back to their transgressions against him, but to the future hope that is secure in God. He points them to all that God has done and all that God will do in bringing them to God's secure future. That's the promise of this last part of Genesis and the Joseph story, and it was the promise to them as well as the same promise to us. That despite our suffering, God will bring us to Him. Let me pray for us. Father God, please comfort those who are suffering. And please help us to know your goodness and your character. Please help our eyes be fixed on Jesus and the hope of our future free from suffering. Thank you that he's promised that this will be ours in the new creation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.